January 8, 1927, this man, C.P. Ellis, was born over just east of Durham, just down the road. C.P. Ellis was born into a dirt, dirt poor farm, farming family, grew up with, uh, with very little in a family that uh, struggled just to simply put food on the table. In uh, 1935, C.P. Ellis was eight years old. and In those days, of course, life around Durham, North Carolina was very much black and white. And the two of those very rarely came together. And so C.P. Ellis grew up in a world that viewed things maybe a little bit differently than we view them today. In 1935, when he was eight, he played in a baseball game. Of course, in those days, blacks and whites did not play on the same teams. And so it was a white team playing a black team. After the game, there were a lot of insults and some fistfights. And that had a profound impact on C.P. Ellis. He began to see life through the lens of skin color. And he began to perceive of his problems being the problem of a black person. He began to see his problem is black people. And this lens, this worldview, if you will, began to, to shape how C.P. Ellis thought and how he viewed his life. In the 1940s, C.P. Ellis married. And in the same year that he married, a Durham City school bus driver who was white shot an Army personnel uh, man who was stationed nearby Camp Butner and was in Durham for the day. He was black, and he was sitting in the wrong seat. And a white Durham school bus driver shot him. And that kicked off a, a terrible series of events in which the racial climate around Durham, North Carolina, became very much degraded, very hostile. There were um, a lot of racial tension resulted from that. And all that is the world in which C.P. Ellis was living. Now, rewind back to 1935, in that same year that C.P. Ellis played that baseball game in which his views of life and his problems began to develop, that same year, Ann Atwater was also born. She was born in Columbus County, which is down near the coast, White Bolt, North Carolina. She was born into a, also a very poor farming, county, far, far, farming family. Um, she was married at age 14, and they relocated to nearby Durham. And Ann Atwater began to also see life through a similar lens as C.P. Ellis, a very black and white lens in the, in, in the sense that her problems were the white person. Ann Atwater became involved with community outreaches and she became involved with um, uh, community projects that attempted to give voice to African Americans in the plights of their life, in the situation, the economic um, injustices that they, they were uh, being subjected to. Well, all this takes place through the 40s and then up into the 50s. If you remember, the 50s were a time of very much uh, forced desegregation. 1951, the University of North Carolina desegregated. 1959, the Durham Public Schools desegregated. 1961, nearby Duke University desegregated. And in the midst of all this desegregation, as whites and blacks were brought together in, in schooling environments, 
This didn't mean that the racial disharmony went away. It meant that it was actually accented and made worse, at least for a time. In 1957, blacks in Durham, North Carolina, began um, a series of protests called the Lunch Counter Protests. Some of you may remember um, those days and the signs. If you don't remember them, you've certainly seen pictures of them. Signs that uh, above eating establishments that say whites only, water fountains, whites only, um, restrooms, whites only. Even, even pictures, if you've seen a picture of the Durham train station, uh, the train station had on the platform a sign that said white waiting area, black waiting area. Those were the times in which Ann Atwater and C.P. Ellis were living in Durham. And um, during this time, beginning in 1957, Ann Atwater became involved with a series of protests called the Lunch Counter Protest. You may have heard of these. You may remember these. Basically, they would involve eating establishments, which were mostly diners in that day, um, that were white only, and blacks would go into these diners and order food. And, of course, they wouldn't be served. But not being served, they would just sit there until the establishment closed. That was called Lunch Counter Protest. In fact, Martin Luther King made a visit to to Durham, North Carolina in 1959, I believe it was, to, um, to speak to this. And this involved a lot of very peaceful, is this peaceful protest movement. Ann Atwater was very involved with this and very instrumental in organizing this and putting these together. Um, later on, they estimate that uh, Durham area businesses were suffering some estimated $900,000 in economic loss due to those lunch counter protests. So this was having an effect. And all this time, C.P. Ellis was seeing what was going on. And again, in his worldview, his problem is the black person. And Ann Atwater's worldview, her problem is the white person. Well, all this goes by for about another decade or so, and then 1971 comes. In 1971, racial tensions, in, in particular in Durham County, were at their peak Violence in the schools was at an all-time high. Racial disharmony was evident everywhere. And so in 1971, an initiative was began called the Durham Save Our Schools Initiative. You may remember that. Durham SOS. The Durham Save Our Schools Initiative. And all this was an effort to get past the racial disharmony that was affecting both black and white students negatively to find ways to resolve this and get past this. And so this initiative was an effort to bring both sides together, sides who saw one another as polar opposites. And so a search was began for who would be um, good representatives for both sides. Now, back up about 10 years into the 1950s and 60s, as all these lunch counter protests are going on and Ann Atwater is involved is organizing all these protests, C.P. Ellis becomes increasingly dissatisfied with what he sees as his problem, the black man. And so he joins the Ku Klux Klan. And in fact, he rises in the ranks to um, the grand exalted, uh, what is it called? The grand exalted Cyclops, which would have been the highest ranking Ku Klux Klan official in the state of North Carolina. So C.P. Ellis in 1971 is now the grand Cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan. Ann Atwater is a very outspoken, very visible activist for African-American rights. And so this Durham Save Our Schools initiative <clears throat> seeks to bring together people who are on opposite sides of the table to solve this issue. And you might guess who the two were that were chosen to represent the different sides. Ann Atwater 
and Cephas, both of which agreed to do this. So they both come together to begin to talk about what they see are their problems and solutions to their problems. During the course of, of this initiative, both Ann Atwater and C.P. Ellis dramatically changed their worldview. C.P. Ellis begins to see that his problem is not the black person. And Ann Atwater begins to see that her problem is not the white person. But instead, they both have a common enemy whom they see to be poverty and lack of opportunity. C.P. Ellis begins to see that the black individuals, which he opposes, actually have the same problem as the poor white individuals, which he thinks he represents, and vice versa. And so actually, out of that Durham Save Our Schools initiative, C.P. Ellis and Ann Atwater actually become great friends, and they are to this day. In fact, they were involved in many, many civil rights um, outreaches and opportunities after that. C.P. Ellis, now in his 80s, is in a convalescent home in Durham. But they're still great friends. C.P. Ellis went on to be a voice for civil rights. Ann Atwater went on to be a voice for civil rights that understood the other side. And all of that happened because both of them who were enemies with one another began to see that they both had a common enemy and then they came together as allies. Happens a lot in life, doesn't it? Happens in war. Sometimes our enemies at peace are our allies in war. Happens in our criminal justice system. Sometimes we will give a plea bargain to a criminal in order to gain his testimony against a bigger criminal. Happens a lot in life. Also happens in Scripture. And we see it happening once again in Acts 14. Today, we'll see a passage that's reminiscent for us of Jesus and Pharisees and Sadducees. Remember when the Pharisees and Sadducees joined together against Jesus, two groups of people who dislike each other, at the very least, hate each other probably is more accurate of a term, but yet they find that they have a common enemy in Jesus Christ. And so they come together to join forces against Jesus. We see the same sort of thing happening today in Acts chapter 14. So join me here, if you haven't already, in Acts chapter 14, we're going to look at the first 20 verses. We remember from last week, Paul and Barnabas have been ran out of town from, uh, from uh, uh, per, uh, I'm sorry, Antioch and Pisidia. They've been run out of town from Antioch. They leave town rejoicing because some people receive their message. Most people rejected it, but they rejoice. And they leave and they go to this place called Iconium. We'll pick up there and I'll, read, I'll go ahead and read the first 20 verses and then we'll begin to just sort of look at this passage verse by verse. Verse 1, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, 
said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconium, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are, uh, we are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. I believe that the story of Acts is probably among the most exciting of all of our scriptures, especially when we get to this point in the story. Many times, I think, when Christians study through the book of Acts for the first time, they are terribly excited about some of these stories that they may not be very familiar with. The story, for example, of of Paul being stoned to death, possibly, left for dead, and then he gets up goes back into the city. Incredibly exciting stuff. And the best part has just begun. But our story begins here in this place called Iconium. Paul and Barnabas, they're driven out of town in Pisidia, or Antioch of Pisidia, and they go to this place uh, called Iconium. Now, Iconium was a little bit different than what we might picture. I think sometimes we picture biblical places as all brown, rocky, dry, arid, sort of desert, no trees, that sort of thing. But Iconium was very much different. Iconium was very green and very lush, very fertile fields, snow-capped mountains in the distance. We're in Central Asia at this point. And so Paul comes into this place, Iconium, and he does what he always does. If there's a synagogue, he begins by preaching in the synagogue, preaching Jesus in the synagogue. And it says in verse 1 that he spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. He spoke in such a way. So he uses his words in a persuasive way. Um, For Paul, preaching the gospel was not a matter of checking your brain at the door. It was not a matter of just preaching to the heart and stirring up emotion only. But for Paul, it definitely involved a mental aspect. It involved a persuasive aspect. We see this sort of thing all through the story of of the Acts. If you will kind of hold your place and flip over, we'll take a little journey through the Acts story right now to chapter 17, verse 17. If we look down at chapter 17, uh, verse 17... Uh, we see this. Now Paul was waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace. And then if we look down to chapter 18, verse 4, we see the same sort of thing. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath to try to persuade Jews and Greeks. Chapter 18, uh, verse 19, looking down there, we see that he came to Ephesus and he left him there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Then we look over to chapter 24, verse 25. Chapter 24, verse 25. As he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, 
Felix was alarmed. And then we look over to chapter 28, verse 23. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So we see a picture of Paul who is not checking his brain at the door, nor does he want anyone to whom he's speaking to check their brain at the door. Instead, he wants to appeal both to their brain and to their heart. If we look at our passage for tonight, uh, our passage tonight is 2 Corinthians 5, beginning verse 11. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So we get a distinct picture here of a man who viewed the gospel as speaking to both the heart and to the mind. Gospel preaching that only speaks to the heart is not gospel preaching. Gospel preaching that only speaks to the mind is not gospel preaching. But instead, the gospel appeals to both the heart and to the mind. So we see Paul here speaking in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers. Where in the world did that come from? What in the world did the Jews have to do with the Gentiles? They don't have anything to do with Gentiles. They're scum, in their opinion. So what do the Jews care what the Gentiles believe? We see, once again, they have a common enemy, don't they? The unbelieving Jews have a common enemy with the unbelieving Gentiles, and that enemy is the message that Paul is there to preach. So they team up together, just like the Sadducees and Pharisees, and just like C.P. Ellis and Ann Atwater, team up together, and they poison their minds against the brothers. So they remain for a long time, so they don't just give up and leave. They remain for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So they're not just preaching the gospel, they're also preaching the gospel and performing signs and wonders that validate the message that they're there to preach. But the people of the city were divided. They were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Again, the message of Jesus is always a divisive message. There are two responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ, belief and unbelief. And those two responses divide all people They bring together people and they separate people. People who believe the gospel are brought together. People who disbelieve the gospel are brought together and the two of those are divided from one another. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled Lystra and Derbe. I'm sorry, to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia to the surrounding country. So again, we see a picture here of apostles in the book of Acts that are not people with a death wish. The apostles, the disciples in the story of Acts are bold. They don't back down from threats. But when those threats become physical, they get out of dodge. They leave. reminds us of the story of uh, Paul in Damascus. He's there in Damascus preaching. And he learns of the, the attempt that's going to be made on his life and the disciples sneak him out of the city. Or later on, Paul's going to be in custody, in Roman custody. And his nephew is going to learn of a plot by the Jews to kill him. And they get him out of there. And so that's the picture we have. The the disciples in the book of Acts don't have a death wish. They're bold. They don't back down from threats. But when things get physical, they leave. Verse 7, and there they continue to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. So they come to this place, Lystra. Lystra 
is in a region called Galatia. So the church that's going to be established at Lystra and Derby are going to be, we believe, two of the churches that Paul was writing to when he writes his letter to the Galatians. Now this region of Galatia in this day was, was known as the frontier. It was the easternmost frontier area of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, after the days of Paul, grew much larger. But in the days of Paul, Galatia was known as the furthest eastward section of the Roman Empire, and Lystra was the furthest east, the, the, the most eastward fortified city of the Roman Empire. So I have this picture in my mind of Lystra as sort of like a, a frontier town, like an old west frontier town, you know, not six guns and saloons, but just of this frontier area in which some civilization has come there, but not a lot. There's still a very barbarous sort of people. Um, there is no monotheism here. Very little education. The people are largely uneducated. Very much a primitive sort of place. And here comes Paul, a devout monotheist, highly educated, coming among a group of pagan, idol-worshipping, illiterate, almost barbarous sort of people. That's the picture that I have in mind here of Lystra. So he comes here, verse 8, In Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Does that sound familiar? That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Probably because we've read it before several times. This same sort of miracle occurs over and over. Jesus did it. Peter did it in Acts chapter 2. It goes like this. There's a man who can't walk from birth. He was born unable to walk. And he is outside of a place of worship, outside of the temple. John chapter 8, he's outside of the pool, the pool that uh, heals people when the waters stir. And he's unable to get in because he can't walk, right? The John chapter 8, whenever the angel stirs the water, I can't get in there. The temple, I can't go in. Acts chapter 2, I can't go in because I'm crippled. I can't. He's outside of the place of worship and he can't get inside because he can't walk. And he was born crippled. And then there's this element of faith. Somehow the person believes and they perceive that he is believing. And then he's given a command to stand up. Not only does he stand up, but he jumps up. And he dances or he leaps around and he celebrates. And then later on, somebody doesn't like it. It happens several times. John chapter 8 and chapter 9, Acts chapter 2, Peter does it there. Now what's going on here? Is the Bible just recycling miracles? Is God maybe lack of imagination here? No, of course not. We see this same pattern over and over because it is so symbolic for us and because it contains so much teaching for us. We are the crippled man. We are born crippled. We're unable to stand before God. Get it? We're unable to walk with God because we're crippled. And because we're crippled, we're outside of the place of worship. And then there's this faith element and the healing element. And after the healing, we don't just stand up. We dance. We jump. We rejoice. We celebrate. And then later, there's the conflict element. Somebody doesn't like what happened. John chapter 9, the Pharisees didn't like it when the guy was healed. Acts chapter 3, the, the council didn't like it when Peter and John healed that guy. We're going to see some conflict later on in this story too. The same pattern over and over because it's teaching us a spiritual truth. And so, 
He sprang up, verse 10, sprang up and began walking. Verse 11, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. What's going on there? Where in the world do they make that connection? When did Paul and Barnabas talk about Zeus and Hermes? Well, the Lyconians had a legend, a fable, so to speak. And it went like this. Long time ago, Zeus and Hermes, which were part of the whole big cluster of gods that the Lyconians believed in, Zeus and Hermes came to Lystra and visited the Lyconians there. Only nobody recognized them because they were in the, in the appearance of humans. And so they came to Lystra and they looked for a place to stay. In fact, they knocked on a thousand doors asking for a place to stay. Nobody would give them a place to stay because nobody recognized who they were. Until finally, the 1,001st door that they knocked on was an elderly couple. This elderly couple, still not recognizing who they were, gave them a place to stay. The gods Zeus and Hermes were so grateful for this that they said to the couple, we will give you one wish. The couple's wish was that they would both die at the same time so that they would not look upon one another's grave. Zeus and Hermes grant this wish, the elderly couple dies, and then they turn their spirits into these two giant oak trees. And guess what was in the middle of Lystra? Two giant oak trees, right? And so that was the legend. I mean, it's a silly story, but they believed it. Now the Lyconians are determined that that's not going to happen to them again. They're not going to miss Zeus and Hermes coming back again. So here comes these two strange characters, Paul and Barnabas. They're dressed sort of strange. They're talking sort of strange. They're preaching sort of strange. And then this guy's healed. Hey, here's Zeus and Hermes. We recognize them this time, right? That's what's going on. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Verse 12, Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So, Paul and Barnabas have preached the gospel. They hear this guy. They, they, uh, obviously, he was healed. If you look back up at verse 9, he listened to Paul speaking. And so he had faith. So Paul's preaching the gospel. There is faith. There is belief there. But then they healed this guy, and Paul and Barnabas see an obvious change in the crowd. The crowd becomes excited, and they're rejoicing, and a big change has taken place. But notice, they're speaking in Lyconian. Paul and Barnabas don't speak Lyconian. So they know that something's going on, something very big, that these people are very, very excited about this, but they're talking really fast in Lyconian, and they don't know what they're saying. And so you can imagine what's going through Paul's mind. They bring these oxen. Paul and Barnabas are probably thinking to themselves, it looks like revival has come here. Like Antioch. Antioch in Syria, the first Antioch. It looks like revival has come here. And then they bring the oxen, and I can imagine probably Paul is thinking, um, maybe we're going to have a feast. Maybe they're so happy we're just going to have a, a feast right here. But then Paul perceives that this isn't a feast, this is a sacrifice. And so Paul's probably thinking to himself, okay, note to self, we're going to have to deal with this whole sacrifice thing later. Obviously, they don't, there's a whole lot of things they don't understand. Write this down, Barnabas, we're going to have to talk about this later. Then they realize, no, they're going to sacrifice to me. Hold on. 
Stop the presses. Stop everything. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, which is the Jewish reaction to idolatry. When a Jew sees idolatry, he tears his clothes. They see idolatry, only they're the idols. They tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. See, we've got five toes, five fingers just like you. See, we're just people. And we bring you the good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet He did not leave Himself without witness, for He did good by giving you rains from heavens and fruitful seas and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In other words, we're just people like you. We're sinful people, but there is a God who created you and who blesses you every day of your life with rain and with food and with a place to live. And you need to turn from these dead idols to the living God. We're going to hear those same words when Paul gets to Mars Hill. You need to turn from these dead gods because there is a Creator and you know about Him. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet He did not leave Himself without witness. Romans 1, He's going to tell the Romans, hey, you, you'd never have to have read about Jesus to know that you were created by a God and that you stand responsible before Him for your sin. Right? He did not leave you without a witness. His witness is all around you. Look all around you at creation. You cannot possibly look around you and not think that somebody is responsible for this. So He didn't leave Himself without a witness, yet He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful season. Verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. You are wrong, Lyconians. You're wrong about us. We are not gods. We are just people like you. Then verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded, persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. So, here's what I, what I picture is happening. Paul and Barnabas were driven out of Iconium and what did they try to do at Iconium? They tried to stone them. But they couldn't. For whatever reason, they couldn't get away with it. But they didn't give up. They followed Paul and Barnabas all the way over to Lystra. They're persistent. You know, sometimes the enemies of the gospel can be more persistent than the children of the gospel, right? So they're persistent. They don't give up. They follow Paul and Barnabas all the way to Lystra. And I picture in my mind how it goes. They, they come into town and they see this big old crowd gathered and there's a lot of noise going on. And they look and Paul and Barnabas are in the middle of the crowd. And everybody's excited. And they think, we're too late. He's already preached to them and they're believing. But then they watch and they see this oxen come out and the priest, the priest of Zeus is there and garlands and all this kind of stuff. And they keep watching. And then they see Paul begin to speak and they hear him convince them. No, we're just people. And they put it all together. And then the crowd turns against them. There's their opportunity. They then persuade the crowds because they live in nearby Iconium. They probably speak Lyconian. So they can communicate with them and they persuade the crowds that these people need to be stoned, which they do. Now, what just happened? What just happened is a reminder of what's in all of our hearts. And it's a tendency, it's something about our nature. You probably noticed it about yourself, but I think it's true about all people. And it goes like this. It is nearly impossible, I think, for someone to fall off of a pedestal and land on ground right beside us. 
When people fall off pedestals, they don't land on the ground beside us. They land in a pit beneath us, don't they? Isn't that how it works? When you have somebody that you think a great deal of, that you hold them in very, very high regard, and something happens to change that, the way that you think about them, and they sort of fall off that pedestal, they don't become just normal people to you. Don't they tend to become people that you are disgusted with? That you almost hate? Isn't that the way that it tends to go? That people who we hold in high regard do something to change that, and it's not like we then think of, well, okay, well, they're, they're still really just like me. Instead, they seem to fall in this pit of, of hatred. And I think that that's the tendency to fall off of a pedestal, not onto the flat ground, but on, into a pit. Think of Lance Armstrong. He's been in the news this week, all week, hasn't he? You remember Lance Armstrong in 1999 and 2000 and 2001? Seven years in a row he won the Tour de France. I, don't, I should have looked this. I'm not sure, but I don't think anybody ever won it two years in a row, especially not an American. And here's this American. Seven years in a row he wins the Tour de France. He became a sensation. But not only that, Lance Armstrong is a good guy. Remember his uh, foundation, Live Strong? He was a cancer survivor. And so he establishes this foundation whose purpose it is to fight cancer. I mean, he was a great guy. And then come the doping allegations. And how do most people feel about Lance Armstrong? They're disgusted by him. Where did that come from? Okay, yeah, the doping is definitely wrong and the lying is definitely wrong. But... I mean, should this be a person that we hate? You see, it's hard to fall from a pedestal onto flat ground. And that's what's happened to Paul and Barnabas. They didn't fall off a pedestal onto flat ground. They go from being worthy of worship and sacrifice to worthy of death. Why? Because Paul and Barnabas showed the, Lys the, the Lyconians that they were wrong about them. You're wrong about us. We're not who you think we are. We're just people. And so the, the Lyconians feel as though they've been tricked. They've been fooled. That wasn't Paul and Barnabas's plan. They didn't want to do that. But the Lyconians feel as though they've been duped because the message that Paul preached to them, when they heard it first, they thought that it fit into their worldview, but then they realized that it does not. When Paul and Barnabas first preached, and they were perhaps not understanding what they were saying, what the message was that they were preaching, they initially thought that this fit into their worldview, but then they were shown that it didn't. And so then, instead of changing their worldview, they rejected it. You know what a worldview is. A worldview is just what the word says. Worldview. It's how we view the world. It's, it's a set of ideas and beliefs that every person holds. And through that system of ideas and beliefs, that is how you view all of reality around you. Every person has a worldview. You have within you a set of beliefs that you hold to be true. And it is through those beliefs that you see everything. 
everything is filtered through your set of beliefs. The, the Lyconians have a worldview. And that worldview is a paganistic, idol-worshipping worldview. And at first, they thought Paul and Barnabas fit right into it. In fact, hey, here's Zeus and Hermes. Then when they found out that they did not fit into their worldview, that was when, instead of changing their worldview, they rejected the gospel message. We see this sort of thing all the time. Now, this passage, I think, has two applications. We're going to leave off the whole stoning part. That, I mean, that's the best part of the story, but we're going to leave that off for next week. This week, I want to just end by looking at two applications for what just happened at, Ly- at Lystra. The first application is obviously going to be for non-believers. And that application basically goes like this. Jesus Christ does not fit into your worldview. Your worldview must be changed around Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does not fit into any worldview. He is a worldview. Right? We see this sort of thing. um, Remember, Jesus comes in the triumphal entry, Matthew 19. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And all the crowds are just adoring Him. Hosanna. Blessed be the One who comes in the name of the Lord, Son of David. This is our Savior. They're receiving Him and they are celebrating Him until He starts to teach. Wait a minute. This guy, he's talking about suffering. He's talking... Wait, 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 wait. He's telling us that the problem is not the Romans, but He's telling us that the problem is us? Is Israel? Well, I think we like that. And then they arrest him and they start beating on him. And he's going to be crucified. Wait, no, no. This doesn't fit. And so I reject it. Right? You see how, just like in Lystra, they thought that Jesus fit their preconceived notions. When they found out he didn't, they rejected him. Same thing with the Jews. When they found out that Jesus did not fit their preconceived notions about what a Savior should be, but instead he was talking about the problem within them and how they were the problem. Well, then they reject that. Instead of changing their beliefs, they reject that. So Jesus Christ cannot fit into a worldview. He must become your worldview. We see this sort of thing in life around us all the time. Um, I think back um, a couple years ago, I did my master's thesis on miracles. For one year, I researched miracles. And what I saw over and over and over as I read all these non-believers writing about the Christian accounts of miraculous activity, over and over I see the same thing. And it went like this. We know that miracles don't actually happen. Therefore, this is what Luke was talking about. Therefore, this is what was going on in Exodus. Therefore, this is what happened in the book of Acts. You see, we, we know that miracles don't happen. Therefore, this is how I'm going to interpret this. It's called a worldview. Right? Jesus Christ won't fit into that system. He must change that system. That's why He says the parable of the new wine and the old wineskins. New wine does not fit into old wineskins. It bursts the old wineskins. The Lyconians had their wineskins burst. and They didn't like it. They rejected it. That's the application for the unbeliever. There's also an application here for the believer. And it goes like this. 
just like the Lyconians and just like the unbelievers that I just talked about, you also have a worldview. All people have a worldview, a system of beliefs through which you interpret all of life. Now, with Christians, that worldview is supposed to be informed by Scripture. And it usually is. Most of the time, I think it is. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes the system of beliefs through which we interpret things is not necessarily informed by Scripture, but maybe by our traditions, maybe by our customs, maybe by the way we were brought up, maybe by something that somebody said to us years ago and it's just always stuck. You know? So our worldview, while, while I think often mostly informed by Scripture, sometimes can be informed by other things, by traditions, so to speak. Let me give one example of what I'm talking about here. How many have heard it said something like this? You should wear your best to church. You don't have to wear a suit or a dress, but you should wear your best to church. Anybody heard that said? Probably all of us, right? Where does the Bible teach that? That concept is not in Scripture. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong to come dressed as this to church. But I'm not saying it's necessarily right either. I'm saying that that is a tradition. Not necessarily right, not necessarily wrong. But not coming from Scripture. You know the only thing that Scripture says to us about the way we dress? Anybody know? Decently. We are not to dress immodestly. And Paul says that within the context of sexual temptation, that the, that the woman is not to dress in a way that sexually tempts the man. Other than that, Scripture is silent about how we dress. And again, I'm not saying that this is wrong or right. I'm saying that that is a belief that you may hold that doesn't come from Scripture, that comes from something else. So you see how sometimes our worldview can be shaped by things that aren't Scripture. Here's the application. The Christian should always be open to having that challenged by God's Word. The Christian should always be open to God's Word shaping and reshaping our beliefs. The Christian should always be open to having our beliefs challenged. Now, you may sort of revolt at that and say, I don't want my beliefs challenged. Listen, if your beliefs are truth, they'll stand up to any challenge. If your beliefs are Scripture, <laughs> hey, challenge away all day long because I stand on a rock. And that rock, brother, is God's Word, right? But the Christian should be open to saying, listen, if something I hold to is not biblically informed, I want that changed. I want that shaped. I want to come into the assembly of God's people open to that. The Bible calls that a teachable heart. Over the past year or so, as, as I've done my personal Bible study, that's one of the things that I've been intentionally looking for is all the times that the Bible talks about the Christian having a teachable heart. Hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. The Bible says things like, like what it says in Proverbs 10 verse 17. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof 
leads others astray. You see the, you see the contradiction. He who heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects correction is leading others into death. Hundreds of times the Bible tells us that, that the Christian must have a teachable heart. C.P. Ellis, I thank God, had a teachable heart. And he had his worldview changed. He had his worldview changed from seeing his problem as people with black skin to now seeing his problem as something else that people with black skin also suffer from, just like people with white skin. And you see how that changed his life and the direction of his life. The prayer of the Christian is this, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Somebody finish that. How are we transformed? By the renewal of your mind. Paul came to Iconium speaking in ways that persuaded some. He comes to Lystra doing the same thing. The Christian is renewed with the Spirit of God. Or this Christian is transformed with the Spirit of God renews our mind. I pray that that will be your prayer as you go through this week and through this year.